Thank you very much. Good morning. Well, if you have a Bible, you might like to turn to 1 Samuel and chapter 10. If you haven't got a Bible, don't worry. The words will come up on the screen. Uh, Just to say, if you want me to pray for you afterwards, I think I could successfully impart man flu to you. So uh, if anyone would like man flu, please come close at the end. Do you hear all the men? I got sympathy from men just then. All the sympathy from the ladies went out of the room. I don't know why. When I talk about man flu in my house, the women just don't understand. I don't know why. Anyway, I'll move on. Uh, Really good to be together, and uh, particularly warm welcome to you if you are a visitor here. Uh, Last week, I began a a two-part series called Unmasking the Poverty Spirits and Revealing Royalty. And I just encourage you, if you didn't hear last week's message, to get a hold of it and have a read, because it's kind of the, the, and a listen, because it's the first part of uh, this second part message now. And I'm just super excited about what God wants to do today. I just feel like this is a really, really significant moment for us together as a church family. And that actually, it's, it has less to do with the money, and it has more to do with people. I don't know if you get that sense. Actually, God's, God's heart always behind these moments where we are perhaps focusing on, on, on money and generosity. Actually, God's heart is always focused on the people behind the money. And money is so often the, the canvas on which God loves to paint massive pictures of who he is and reveals himself in, in special, kind of unique, incredible ways. And it was amazing to me that last week, uh, two pastors from other churches came to me and said, we'd like to give money into your gift day next Sunday. Now, you know a miracle's happening, don't you, when that happens? And uh, one of them was from Sweden, and one of them was from London, which I just thought was incredible. Uh, one pastor from London, he, he described to me how God had helped him over the last several months pay off £25,000 worth of debt. And he said, I've been so rocked by the provision of God in my life. He said, I just want to sow into what you're doing as a church. He said, because I know that you can't ever outgive God. I just thought it was such a beautiful, beautiful testimony. And uh, also we're talking to a friend of ours in, in this church, and she was just sharing that first adventure moment she had in the area of radical giving and generosity. And Simon's already mentioned how that moment he, he and Caroline first took the plunge and started giving 10% of their income. And my friend was just telling me her story of how that first happened in her life. And she said at the time, uh, we really didn't have that much money. I was a single parent, had three small children, but she said, in reading the Word of God, I just became convinced that I should give 10% of my income away, and that I just couldn't escape it. And so uh, she, she wrote in a text, she said, I felt compelled to give a tenth, and I worked it out to the nearest pound and pence. And I felt, to start, I should give it to someone who I knew is in dire need. So I drove to their house, I posted it through their front door... And immediately when I came home, I had cash in an envelope through my door with exactly the same amount that I'd just given. She said, I've never, ever forgotten that moment because God is so kind. I just love that. And, you know, around this room, there are stories and stories like that where God has proven himself faithful in the area of money because money actually is just a means to him revealing himself. And that's why these moments are so, so important. So we're going to start by reading in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And you may think this is a strange place to start, but I'll explain why we're here in a minute. And as we kind of come to read this part in 1 Samuel chapter 10, what's happening in the nation of Israel at the time is that up to this point, Israel had never had its own king. 
Israel had been ruled by a series of judges and leaders and prophets, men like Moses. But up to this point, Israel had never had their own king, unlike many of the nations around them. But it comes to a point in this part of the history of Israel where Israel starts demanding a king of their own. They say, we want a king like the other nations. Let's, let's have a king. And so they go to the prophet Samuel, who at the time is leading the nation, and they demand a king. And so Saul is the very first king anointed by Samuel to become the king of Israel. And so I'm just going to read a little bit of the story of what happens around that moment that reveals some really important truths. So 1 Samuel 10 verse 20 says this, When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, they couldn't find him. So they inquired further of the Lord, has this man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, but he's hiding amongst the bags. They ran and brought Saul out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than all of the others. Samuel said to the people, Do you see the man that the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! And here's the bit I want you to notice. Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. Or as some versions say, he explained to them the ways of royalty. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited them before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. Israel was not acquainted with the ways of royalty. And in this highly prophetic moment, Samuel stands up and he reminds them. He says, listen, now you have a king. This is the way that royalty works. And you can tell that Israel didn't really know about royalty because the very man who's appointed to be king is hiding amongst the supplies. <laughs> so much so they have to seek God to find where he is. And then when they eventually find him, they bring him out and Samuel begins to explain, listen, this is how kings live. This is how royalty operates. And the immediate effect is that valiant men start to rise up in Israel. They begin to step forward because God had touched their hearts. And I want to suggest to you that we are in a season where prophetically God is again wanting to reveal royalty. Now I'm not talking about the royal family and I'm not talking about the Queen of England. I'm talking about you. Because scripture says you are no longer slaves, you are sons. You're no longer on the outside, you're on the inside. The old is gone, the new has come. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. You are now part of God's royal household, his family. He is the king that makes you a prince or princess. You are now part of his household. And one of the things that God's doing often through these moments where we focus on giving and money and possessions is he's calling his royal ones out and he's saying, stop hiding. It's time to step forward. It's time for the valiant ones to take the field. Those whom God, God has touched their hearts. And we're in that kind of moment because Jesus used money as a platform for revealing hearts. 
for bringing his royal ones forward, for bringing them out of the shadows and onto the playing field, because you're not consumers, you're participants. You don't go to church, you are the church. You, you don't come to consume religious goods and services. We are the family of God. We are his household together. And one of the reasons that Jesus spoke so much about money is that nowhere do your identity beliefs get revealed more than in how you spend your money. <laughs> you, you want to look at what you really believe, look at how you spend your money. It will tell you. You don't need to look very far. It will tell you your priorities, your values, who you think you belong to, what's important to you. Money is a mirror. And I'm always fascinated by those stories of lottery winners. Anyone else fascinated by the story of what happens to people after they win the lottery? And of course, oftentimes, the story of lottery winners is very tragic. It's interesting. I don't know if you've ever asked the question, well, why is that? In American studies of American lottery winners, they discovered that over a third of lottery winners end up declaring bankruptcy. They end up with less money than they started. And even more tragically, many lottery winners are much more likely to be estranged from their family, to go through tragic divorces, to commit suicide, to be addicted to alcohol and drugs. Why? Because money is just a canvas that reveals who you really are. You give money to a pauper, and pretty soon they'll turn the palace into a prison. That's the way it works. You always export what you believe is in here. That's why Jesus used money as a mirror that reveals reality to us. You know, when you get, get up in the morning, go to your mirror, check your hair, check you're looking all right. You're looking for a picture of reality. Well, it's the same with your money. Your money shows you what you really believe. It gives you a window on your own soul and belief systems. And I really believe this is a moment where God is calling us out of the baggage, out of the supplies, out from hiding, and he's saying, come on, step forward. It's a time for the valiant ones to take the field. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. That is what we're going to do today is we give our money. We are going to show our town and the place where you live. We're going to show them the goodness of God. Because we're not like what we used to be. We're now a royal household. We can show people the goodness of God because he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And as I said last week, biblical wealth has nothing to do with how much or how little you possess. Biblical wealth is about mindset, not assets. Jesus was the wealthiest man who ever walked planet Earth. And yet most of the time, he possessed very, very little in a material sense. But what you notice in the life of Jesus is that you put Jesus into any context and suddenly things come to life. Why? Because you always export what's within you. Wealth is an inside job. And that's why you could have a lot of money or, or very little money and actually it has nothing to do with how wealthy you are because wealth is what's in here. It's an inside job. We always act out of our sense of identity. So I guess here's the opening question. What is your money telling you right now? When you look in the money mirror, 
What's it speaking back at you? What's it showing about this? You could have a million pounds or a fancy pair of shoes or two bucks in your pocket. It doesn't really matter. What matters is this. Jesus is interested in people, but he will use money to reveal them. And so what I want to do in the time that we've got left is just look at some of the financial attitudes of royalty. When you're living now as a royal son, a royal daughter, what are your attitudes now towards money and possessions? And you're going to run out of time before I do this morning, so I'm going to give you my eight-point sermon, okay, before I preach it, and then I'm going to see how we get on. So here are eight attitudes towards finances. Number one, attitude towards legacy. A poverty mentality says, what can I own? But a royal identity says, what can I leave? Attitude to needs. Poverty says, I am so aware of my needs, but a royal identity is aware of his riches. An attitude to challenges. Poverty focuses on the obstacles, but royal ones focus on the opportunities. An attitude to favor. Poverty says, I am so afraid of missing out, but royal ones can rejoice in the successes of others, even their financial successes. Attitude to ownership. Poverty mentality says, what I have defines who I am. But a royal identity says, who has me defines who I am. An attitude to security. A poverty mentality says, my stuff will protect me. But a royal identity says, my heavenly father protects me. An attitude towards gifts. A poverty mentality says, when people give me rich gifts, it exposes how little I think of myself. But a royal identity actually gives honor where you know that honor is due. An attitude towards powerful people. With a poverty mentality, we withdraw from powerful people. But with a royal identity, we become at home with everybody. Woo! That is a good list right there. That will make a great 10-hour sermon one day. But let's just pick a few of those off. Firstly, what about your attitude towards legacy? When you're living... Through a poverty filter, poverty mentality, very often what consumes you and what you're thinking of when you think about legacy is what can I buy? What can my money buy? What can I own? What can I possess that can become mine? But when you live as a royal son and daughter, you're less thinking about what you can own and you're much more thinking about what you can leave. You're thinking about legacy. You're thinking about inheritance. What can I pass on? What can I, what can I give away that's going to outlast me? What can I sow in now that we're going to reap the benefit of tomorrow? That's how royal people think. What legacy are you leaving? Here's just an example what legacy are you leaving with how you use your home? I worry sometimes that people's homes own them rather than you owning a home. There is a difference. I'm actually far more concerned about what legacy I'm leaving by what happens in my house than what I do on my house. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to spend money on your house and look after it. You can do that to the glory of God. But you know, there comes a point sometimes where you think, I think this house is beginning to own you, buddy. You're starting to think more about what you do on it rather than what happens in it. The real legacy you will leave is what happens inside your homes. So ask yourself this question, what legacy am I leaving by what happens inside my house? 
Is the legacy you're leaving? We watch lots of television. Now, I'm not saying that watching television is wrong, but if that is the main thing that happens inside your house, you're going to leave a certain type of legacy. Sorry. (laughs) You know, better to have a crummy house, but have some awesome things happen inside it. What's happening inside it? You know, since we were going to sleep last night, Carol and I were chatting, and we were, we've had 15 different people live with us over the last 19 years. Some of them for years, some of them for months. Uh, all sorts of different backgrounds and different kind of reasons and circumstances. And I was just you know, beginning to think about some of the, 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 the kind of people we've had. The very first person we had to live with us was a guy called Neil. And uh, he was a he was a guy that worked with Carol at a health center. He wasn't a Christian, but two weeks into us being married, this guy, Neil, got kicked out of the home where he was living and he was going to be on the streets. And so we said to Neil, well, come and live with us then. You can you know, come and stay with us for a couple of weeks while you get something sorted out. Six months later, he was still there. But, you know, and I used to remember Neil, you know, he used to go out kind of clubbing and drinking and he would kind of come in at, you know, silly o'clock in the, in the morning and he would always try and get into our bedroom to have a friendly chat in the middle of the night. He'd be like, oh, I just love you guys, are you awake? And we'd hear him kind of rattling on the door trying to get in and so we invested in a really heavy-duty lock. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but he was, he was part of our family for that season and, yeah, he would hear us worshipping and praying and we would share Jesus. We'd have incredible conversations with him. Do you know, and I think now, you know, I don't know what kind of legacy that left in his life, but I'm, I'm glad that he was part of our family because of what happened inside our home. And I was thinking another, another lady, she was an asylum seeker. Uh, she came to us having seen our whole village burnt to the ground and most of her family executed in front of her. And she left that nation fleeing for her own life. And she ended up in the northeast of England. And she came and lived with us for several months. And uh, I remember it was just a, it was a fascinating time. You know, completely kind of different culture. We realized that something wasn't going quite right when we realized that our kids would run away every time they saw her coming into the house. And we're like, what's going on? Well, this is a bit strange. Until one day we came in and we found that she was making them bow to the ground in respect to her as an African mama. And we thought, oh, okay, now it makes sense. That was an interesting time. I left an interesting legacy. I'm sure my kids probably need healing prayer, actually, for that. But, you know, I remember another girl, I remember getting a phone call uh, at midnight one night. And a friend said, my, my friend's about to sell herself into the porn industry to... to to feed her drug habit, help. I remember us going around at midnight to this girl's house, talking to her, praying with her, counseling her, talking her out of what she was about to do. We said, come on, come and live with us. You know, and I think ultimately legacy is created by how you invest yourself into people and how your money works for people and how you invest into family. Those kind of things will last beyond you. What legacy are you passing on to the next generation? Proverbs 13.22 says this, A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. You are always creating today what you're going to live in tomorrow. Some of us are so short-termist that we're just thinking about today, but listen, tomorrow you are going to live in the result of what you sowed in today. The decisions that you make today will bear fruit in the years to come. 
Sometimes you may see them immediately. Other times you may not see them for many years. Sometimes you won't even see them in your own lifetime. When I think about a man like John Bunyan, I don't think he could have thought what legacy he was leaving beyond his lifetime. And yet there he is, a statue in the middle of Bedford Town Center, still speaking today about the kind of life he lives. You never know the decisions you make to sow today. They can reverberate through the generations and generations and generations. That's why God says, listen, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is always thinking three generations. Are you thinking three generations? Because God is. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What inheritance are you leaving? What legacy are you passing on? Royal ones think in terms of making history and transforming culture. I'm not going to live in a way, I'm not going to reduce my life down to the stuff that I own. I'm going to instead step forward and be a valiant one and sow into something that's going to make a difference. You are those valiant ones. You are a royal son, a royal daughter. This is your new normal. This is how you live. If you're not living like that, you've missed your new normal. God is calling us out to be who we're called to be. You know, and it's amazing today, these five areas that Simon's outlined, do you know, I, I get to sow in something that I might never directly be involved in doing, but I can somehow play my part in it. You know, I, I may never write an incredible creative worship song that just goes around the globe and touches thousands of people and introduces them to Father God, but someone in this church might, and I get to sow and partner with that. You know, I, I may never, you know, work in the transformation center. I may never get a counseling degree and, and get qualified to help people who are in marriage crisis. But someone here is going to do that. And I get to sow and partner with you because your success is my success. Because we're a family. Just because your gift might be pastoring and mine might be prophetic. We are family. We get to share in one another's stuff. Because we are not lots of individuals. We are a family. We're together. We're a unit. And together, our decisions get to create something that forms a legacy. Next, what about attitude towards our needs? With a poverty mentality, very often the thing that we are most aware of is our needs. But royal ones actually become much more aware of his riches. What are you more aware of this morning? Your needs or his riches? Because here's what Philippians 4.19 says. My God will supply all your needs according to what? His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. How does God supply you? supply you with kind of just enough, just enough to get by, kind of, oh, just eking a living? No, no. God supplies according to his riches in glory. How rich, are, how rich is his glory in Christ Jesus? Like Harry, I mean, if you can quantify that, please come and tell me afterwards. You are talking about a limitless, everlasting, eternal God who never had a beginning and who never had an end. That the, the short history of this planet to him is just like a blip on the landscape of his existence. You're talking about that God. He supplies according to his riches, not just according to your needs. I love the stories of George Muller who is a 
Christian philanthropist in the 19th century, and he literally lived in a remarkable life where he prayed in thousands and thousands of pounds because he had this understanding, I now have access to riches in my father. I am no longer a pauper, I am a prince. I often like to say this is like having heavenly fridge rights. Okay, when I, when I moved out of home a long, long time ago, but when I go back to my father's house, I have fridge rights. It's that beautiful thing that sons and daughters have when they go back home to their parents' house, which is, because of who I am, I have access to the best stuff in my father's fridge. Now, how many of you kids have moved out? You recognize that this is true. When your kids come home, there is no bread left in the house. That's because... My sonship gives me access in my father's house that would not be appropriate for you, but is for me because of who I am. And actually, you have access to his riches because of who you are. And George Muller had this great revelation of how this worked in his life. He understood, I'm not a pauper, I'm a prince. That means when I pray, I can trust my father to provide. He's not kind of scrabbling around for cash. My father owns everything. And a beautiful little story of one time where he was about to set sail with his wife to Canada. And his wife got terribly, terribly seasick. And so to help her, he had ordered this special deck chair for her to sit in on the ship. And he'd ordered it on special delivery from New York. And the idea was that it would turn up at the ship before the ship set sail and she would receive her chair. But 10 minutes before the ship was about to set sail, Mr. Muller's chair had still not arrived. And he went to the quartermaster. He said, listen, has my chair arrived? He said, no, there are no more deliveries coming today. I'm afraid you're not going to get your chair. And in fact, a friend of his who was nearby listening said, listen, why don't you just buy one of those other old deck chairs over there? I'll even give you the money. And he's like, no, no, no. I asked my heavenly father for this chair from New York and I'm trusting him to provide it. Ten minutes before they're about to set sail. And then the man who's writing, he said this, as this dear man of God went peacefully on board the boat, running the risk of Mrs. Muller making the voyage without a chair, when for a couple of dollars she could have been provided for, I confess I feared Mr. Muller was carrying his faith principles too far and not acting wisely. Now, just a note, that's what faith looks like. When you look at something and say, that doesn't seem very wise. Aren't you carrying your faith a little bit too far? That's faith. When you give today, if that's what it looks like, you're in the right kind of ballpark. Okay? That doesn't feel very wise. Aren't you taking this faith thing too far? Brilliant. Precisely. There you are. You're in the right time zone right there. And, of course, the story goes on. Just a few minutes before the ship sets sail, an unexpected delivery comes with a van, and on the top of it, is Mr. Muller's deck chair. And the guy, the guy who'd offered to buy him a chair carries the chair up onto the boat. And he says, I found Mr. and Mrs. Muller in a retired spot on one side of the boat, and I handed him the chair. He took it with the happy, pleased expression of a child who had just received a kindness that was deeply appreciated. Reverently removing his hat and folding his hands over the chair, he thanked his heavenly Father for sending it. And then he said... In everything, by prayer and petition, let your requests be made known to God. Cast all your cares upon him, because he cares for you. When you're a royal one, you realize you have access. That God's heavenly storehouse is much bigger than yours. 
He is able to provide. He's able to do miraculous things with very, very little. Chris Vallotton says this, most of us are still looking at our provision to help us determine our vision, and therefore we are living within our means instead of his blessings. Because what happens when you reduce your vision down to your ability to perform and provide, you start to live by self rather than by faith. And you are called to live by faith. So sometimes people come to you and say, well, I'm just living by faith, brother. Which losing means you're looking for someone else to provide you an income. But actually, living by faith happens whether you have a regular income or not. You may have a steady stream coming your direction. question is, are you using it to live by faith? Faith is what pleases God. In fact, Scripture says without faith, you cannot please God. Faith is both believing what God said is true and then expecting something good to come about because of it. That's what faith is. I remember when we first moved to Bedford, we moved from the northeast of England, and it took us several months, actually, to actually get our act in gear and start giving regularly to the church. And to be honest, each month was a bit of a struggle financially. We'd hit the end of the month. We'd always be in the red. And I had those kind of, you know, those... This may just be me. This may not make sense to you at all. But I had those logical kind of inner tapes going on in my head that said things like this. I'll start next month. It's, it's much more expensive living in Bedford. I'll start when we've got a little bit more put aside. I'll fill in the standing order tomorrow. I won't do it right now. I'll just leave it. I'll remember tomorrow. And of course, I always forgot. I had all these kind of pragmatic, reasonable-sounding arguments going around my head until eventually, in the Spirit, God convicted me. I thought, we've just got to start giving. We've just got to start doing this. And so we set up our standing order. We, we, we gave what we've always tried to do in our married life. Last 20 years, we've given just a basic 10% of our income. Then anything else that we give, we give on top of that. We just do that as standard. I'm convinced in the Bible that is the best platform for generous giving. And so we started up our standing order. We began to give our 10%. You know, the remarkable thing was nothing changed in our income, nothing changed in our circumstances, but suddenly we had enough money every single month. Why? Because suddenly you're tapping into his resources, not just your own. You're living by faith, not just by means. (laughs) And then lastly, our attitude towards challenges When you live with a poverty mentality, very often you are more focused on the obstacles than the opportunities. But when you live as a royal son and as a royal daughter, you live aware of the opportunities, of what is now possible. I wonder when you come to give your money this morning, are you thinking through the lens of, just imagine what is possible when we come together as a massive fighting unit When we bring our little offerings, our big offerings, our offerings of faith, when we bring this together, just imagine what is possible in this place, in this town, in the place where you live. Just imagine what we can do together. Do you think through that lens? Or are you thinking through the obstacles? Uh, I read a story of Danny Silks, and he said he was talking to a pastor who oversees 4,000 churches. And he said to this pastor, he said, how on earth do you deal with all the problems? I can hardly deal with one. How do you deal with them all? And the pastor said to him, problems? We don't look at the problems because what you look at always gets bigger. So we look at God. Did you get that? What you look at always gets bigger. So what are you choosing to focus on? 
the things that seem impossible, or the God who eats impossible for breakfast? What are you focused on? Because it will reveal something about you. It will reveal something about your mentality. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, have an abundance for every good work. We serve a God of super abundance. And that's the way you and I are now called to live and to think. Super abundant thinking. That's how royal ones think. So now here's the amazing thing. If all the adults in this church gave 25 pounds extra a month on top of what you're already giving or not yet giving, we would raise in an instant 150 grand over the course of the year. That is roughly six pounds a week, which is roughly the price of a latte and a muffin at Costa. <laughs> I put it to you that for the price of a latte and a blueberry muffin, you could actually invest in something that is going to change thousands of lives, not just in this town, but around the globe. <laughs> Through the lens of poverty, 250 grand seems like an awful lot of money. I tell you, it's nothing. It's peanuts. Seriously, it is peanuts in the grand scheme of things. My God owns everything. It's interesting, the story of the prodigal son. The elder brother gets very offended at the blessing that the father pours out on the youngest son who squandered everything and then comes back smelling of pigs and still the father blesses him. And you remember the elder brother comes to the father and he's like, how come this son who squandered everything, you've killed the fattened calf, you didn't even give me a goat. <laughs> and the father says to him, son, all I have is yours. All I have is yours, you've been with me all the time. And so often, when we're thinking as paupers, we are focusing on the goat that we don't have, rather than the whole farm that is already yours. <laughs> and we get offended at the blessing of other people when we think through a pauper mentality, because we have this fear of missing out. We think, God, if you bless them, that means there's not enough to go around for me. Pauper thinking. It's not who you are anymore. It's not who you are. You think differently now. You're in Christ. You've inherited his way of thinking about money and possessions and eternity. 250,000 pounds. Let's do it, guys. Seriously, let's charge the hill, take the mountain, stick in a flag, do whatever you want to do. But let's do it together. Let's think in accordance with our real royal identity. And if you know that you've been thinking through a poverty lens... Just repent. Repentance doesn't mean say sorry. It means change. Change the way you think. Think in line with who you now are. And here's the thing. Sometimes your beliefs change by putting your behavior into practice first. Sometimes we're thinking, well, I'll just wait for God to let the penny drop and then I'll give. Listen, very often God's route for change, behave first, your, your beliefs will follow. It's very often the way that God works. Sometimes you have to see something in the word of God and say, by conviction, I see that this is right. I don't yet feel like really excited about it, but I'm convinced that God is true. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to put my money where the word of God says. Let me tell you, your heart will follow. 
because you can never outgive a superabundant God.